Welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by DocketWise, an all-in-one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like DocketWise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, DocketWise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about DocketWise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com slash immigration dash review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So without further ado, let's start the review. To quote Eddie Murphy, Merry New Year. May everyone's year be better than the last, and may our country become kinder and more just. Bringing in 2021 with four cases, lots of crimes, and a rewind to the 1980s. I hope you enjoy. The first case is Mendoza Flores v. Rosen, published by the Fifth Circuit on December 29, 2020. This is a case about mootness, and it's the first case ever published against Acting Attorney General Jeffrey Rosen. Mr. Mendoza Flores initially entered the U.S. in 2012, having been paid to transport marijuana. He was caught, pled guilty to federal possession of marijuana with intent to distribute, and he was removed from the United States to Mexico. He re-entered again in late 2012, and he was caught in 2018. When he was caught, ICE reinstated the first order of removal. The reinstatement notice also informed Mr. Mendoza Flores that he was barred from re-entering the U.S. for life because, and although it wasn't the basis for the removal order in 2012, his federal conviction qualified as a drug trafficking aggravated felony under INA Section 101A43B. Mr. Mendoza Flores claimed to have a fear of persecution and torture in Mexico, and so, following reinstatement, DHS provided him with a reasonable fear interview. He passed the reasonable fear interview, and so, he was placed in withholding-only proceedings before an immigration judge. In those proceedings, Mr. Mendoza Flores requested a continuance to pursue a T-visa with USCIS, a type of non-immigrant visa for victims of trafficking that only USCIS has authority to grant. The IJ denied the continuance and denied withholding of removal and Convention Against Torture Protection. Mr. Mendoza Flores appealed to the BIA and lost. USCIS then denied his T-visa application. 
He petitioned for review to the Fifth Circuit, but was physically removed during the pendency of the petition. And because of that physical removal, the Fifth Circuit found the petition moot in this case. The crux of Mr. Mendoza-Flores' claims were that the IJ erred in denying him a continuance to pursue the T-Visa, but he conceded before the Fifth Circuit that his T-Visa application could no longer be granted. Indeed, it had already been denied. As to withholding of removal and cat protection, the Fifth Circuit stated that removal moots a petition for review unless the non-citizen can show that he, quote, suffers collateral legal consequences from the BIA's decision, end quote. Here, the Fifth Circuit held that Mr. Mendoza-Flores could not show that he suffered collateral legal consequences because the aggravated felony, 2012 removal order, and physical removal in 2012 made him permanently inadmissible to the United States, and quote, even if we decided that the BIA erred in denying Mr. Mendoza-Flores withholding of removal, he would still be subject to the February 2012 removal order and thus inadmissible to the United States, end quote. So the petition was dismissed, but I must respectfully dissent. I don't think the Fifth Circuit got this one right. As the Tenth Circuit explained twice this month, it is universally accepted by the courts and ICE that ICE will facilitate the return of non-citizens if they succeed on their petition for review, even if the petition for review only regards withholding or cat protection, and even if the non-citizen has been convicted of an aggravated felony or is otherwise inadmissible. The return of a non-citizen after a successful petition for review, as I understand it, doesn't have anything to do with admissibility, and is designed to protect a non-citizen's due process rights as well as statutory and regulatory guarantees. After all, by definition, all withholding and CAT recipients have been ordered removed, and many are inadmissible. But if the IJ and the BIA erred in denying Mr. Mendoza-Flores' withholding of removal or CAT claims, a legal and indeed statutory violation has occurred that requires a remedy, as ICE itself recognizes when it facilitates the return of these individuals, notwithstanding their inadmissibility. If being forced to live in a country where one will more likely than not be persecuted or tortured is not a collateral consequence of a removal order, I'm not sure what is. So respectfully, I think the fifth might have got it wrong. But I am not a judge. And that is Mendoza Flores v. Rosen. Next is Flores v. Rosen, published by the Ninth Circuit on December 30th, 2020. To quote Game of Thrones, it sometimes seems that in immigration, what is dead may never die. Which brings us, ladies and gentlemen, to this case, concerning the Special Agricultural Worker, or SAW, program from the 1980s. Under President Reagan's Republican-supported SAW program, certain non-citizens who had performed seasonal agricultural services in the United States for at least 90 days during the 12-month period ending on May 1, 1986, could apply for adjustment to temporary resident status. Applicants had 18 months to apply in the late 1980s and had to be admissible to secure the benefit. After a set time, SAW recipients then automatically adjusted to full LPR status without need of a new application. 
the 1980s were truly a magical time. Mr. Flores was one such SAW recipient. However, in 1986, before getting the temporary SAW benefit and before adjusting to LPR status, he pled guilty under a different name to sale of cocaine and sale and possession of heroin and cocaine. He apparently didn't disclose these convictions in his SAW application. I say apparently because the SAW statute was so magical that it pretty much prevents immigration officials from reviewing the pre-SAW immigration record of a SAW recipient, meaning the Ninth Circuit and presumably the immigration court in this case didn't even review Mr. Flores' SAW application because they're not allowed per the statute. But DHS somehow became aware of the conviction in 2015, maybe because Mr. Flores tried to naturalize and admitted to it, who knows and DHS charged him as a non-citizen who was inadmissible at the time of adjustment under INA Section 237A1A. And IJ and the BIA affirmed the removability. And the Ninth Circuit did too. It held that even though the SAW statute allowed for the then-former INS to terminate SAW status before a recipient became a full-fledged LPR, INS's failure to do so in the late 1980s does not preclude a removability finding by an immigration judge 25 years later. This is due in part because in the 2006 en banc decision Perez Enriquez v. Gonzalez, the Ninth Circuit held that admissibility for SAWs is determined at the time they obtain the temporary SAW residency, not at the time the temporary status is removed. And unlike Mr. Perez Enriquez, Mr. Flores obtained his convictions before he became a temporary LPR under the SAW, so he was inadmissible at the time he obtained temporary LPR status under the SAW. The Ninth Circuit held that nothing in the SAW statute limits an admissibility finding to the small time period between temporary LPR and full LPR status, and that DHS is not precluded to bringing such charges even though it never terminated the temporary SAW LPR status in the 1980s and made Mr. Flores a full-fledged LPR. Mr. Flores, therefore, is removable after all these years. Here are two observations. God knows how DHS became aware of these convictions after 25 years or how it met its burden in this case, what with the strict confidentiality rules surrounding the SAW. Be careful what your clients admit to under oath, practitioners. And note this statement from Judge Bress, who authored this decision and who has often ruled against non-citizens in the published decisions that he's authored during his short time on the bench. Judge Bress noted, seemingly for no reason at all, that, quote, Petitioner does not claim that the Attorney General is prevented from seeking removal because the government knew of the disqualifying convictions but nonetheless approved Petitioner's SAW application, end quote. Maybe Judge Bress is open to such an estoppel-type argument. I wonder. And that is Flores v. Rosen. Next, we're going to go a little rogue and discuss USA v. Al-Muwakil, published by the Fourth Circuit on December 28, 2020. This case arises in the context of the Armed Career Criminal Act, or ACCA, and I usually don't even review them because if I did, I wouldn't be able to do anything else with my life. But this one caught my eye, so I thought I'd mention it. 
Not all ACCA cases affect immigration law, but some do, and this is one of them. The reason that the ACCA sometimes affects immigration law is that in order to enhance a federal defendant's criminal sentence due to that defendant's prior convictions, courts apply the categorical approach to analyze the prior convictions. Yes, that's right, the same categorical approach used in immigration law. So the way in which circuit courts apply the categorical approach under the ACCA is often equally applicable to the criminal conviction analysis in immigration court. Now, substantively, the ACCA provisions don't all match up with the removability provisions, so other than how the circuit applies the categorical approach, the cases aren't always so relevant. But this case is, because it concerns ACCA violent felonies, under 18 U.S.C. section 924E2BI, colloquially referred to as the ACCA's Violent Felony Elements Clause. And that clause is materially similar to 18 U.S.C. Section 16A, the only constitutional immigration crime of violence aggravated felony, following DiMaia v. Sessions in 2017. Or put another way, if a criminal statute doesn't satisfy the ACCA's Violent Felony Elements Clause, it almost surely doesn't satisfy 18 U.S.C. Section 16A meaning the criminal statute almost surely isn't an aggravated felony, crime of violence, for immigration purposes. Still following? Good. So first, discussing the categorical approach generally, the Fourth Circuit stated, quote, The focal point of the analysis is what the jury must find, or a defendant must admit, to convict, end quote. Good quote to guide your categorical approach analysis, and to help the court focus on what's important. Then substantively, and without getting too deep into the very complicated analysis in this case, the Fourth Circuit held that here, the following two Virginia convictions don't qualify as violent felonies. Those statutes are attempted rape in violation of Virginia Code Section 18.1-44 and burglary in violation of Virginia Code 18.2-90. Virginia's attempted rape is not a violent felony because the statute is not divisible into separate crimes, but rather describes five means of committing the crime, and quote, no force is required to convict a defendant of four of the means of committing the offense, end quote. It doesn't matter whether Mr. Al-Mawakil violated the statute in the fifth violent way or not, because the statute is indivisible, and that stops the analysis. Turning to Virginia burglary, as I might do if the podcast doesn't pan out, that crime is not a violent felony because it allows for conviction for burglaries accomplished by a variety of, quote, unlawful acts that don't necessarily require, as an element, violent force. The crime can be accomplished, for example, by, quote, merely pushing open a door, turning the key, lifting the latch, or resorting to other slight physical force, end quote. Not violent nor does the statute require the requisite mens rea, or culpable mental state, to be a violent felony. This wins the day for Mr. Al-Mawakil, despite the fact that he was actually convicted of burglary with the intent to commit murder. The categorical analysis is purely statutory, and bad facts don't always make for bad law. So it appears Mr. Al-Mawakil's criminal sentence will be reduced, 
But more importantly for immigration purposes, this case can be relied upon to argue that attempted rape in violation of Virginia Code Section 18.1-44 and burglary in violation of Virginia Code Section 18.2-90 are not crimes of violence, aggravated felonies. And that is USA v. Al-Mawakal. Finally, we have Garcia Simistera, the U.S. Attorney General, published by the 11th Circuit on December 30th, 2020. This is a case about INA Section 101A43MI aggravated felonies and the amount of loss analysis, the same issue discussed last week in the 3rd Circuit's RAD decision. Mr. Garcia Simistera is a lawful permanent resident and was convicted of one count of money laundering in violation of Florida Statute Section 896.1013A and 5C, and one count of workers' compensation fraud in violation of Florida Statute Section 440.105-4B5 and 4F3. The crimes were charged in the first degree, meaning, according to the 11th Circuit, that the violations charged involved a loss of at least $100,000. Mr. Garcia Simistera eventually entered a plea of nolo contendere to the money laundering and workers' compensation fraud counts, which means he agreed to the conviction without accepting guilt. In exchange for his pleas, the state of Florida reduced the charges to third-degree felonies, which under Florida law involves a monetary loss of less than $20,000 and possibly less than $10,000. In the plea agreement, Mr. Garcia Simistera accepted three years probation and, quote, disgorgement of criminal proceeds, end quote, in the amount of $104,000. DHS alleged that the conviction made Mr. Garcia Simistera removable under INA Section 237A2A III because the conviction is an aggravated felony as defined at INA Section 101A43MI a fraud or deceit conviction involving an amount of loss to the victim of over $10,000. The IJ and then the BIA sustained the aggravated felony finding, and the 11th Circuit did too. It doesn't appear that Mr. Garcia Simistera challenged whether the convictions categorically involved fraud or deceit in immigration court or before the 11th Circuit. Rather, this case is all about whether DHS proved by clear and convincing evidence, and using the circumstance-specific approach, that Mr. Garcia Simistera's fraud conviction involved a loss to the victim of over $10,000. Here, the 11th Circuit held that DHS had met its burden. Because the circumstance-specific approach applies to the over $10,000 amount analysis, a court in the 11th Circuit, quote, may consider the entire record from a person's conviction, end quote. Reviewing those documents, the 11th Circuit found that the amount of loss was met here because Mr. Garcia Simistera pled nolo contendere to count one, which charged first-degree workers' compensation fraud, and an alleged loss of over $100,000. The 11th Circuit recognized that Mr. Garcia Simistera had entered into a plea agreement with prosecutors to reduce the conviction from first- to third-degree felonies meaning the amount of loss agreed to was under $20,000 and maybe under $10,000, rather than over $100,000. 
But the 11th Circuit read the Supreme Court's decision in Nijuan Beholder. Even in circumstances such as this, where a defendant has pled to a different degree of the crime as alleged in the indictment, as allowing courts to, quote, look to the facts and circumstances underlying an offender's conviction, end quote. According to the 11th, quote, the important fact for Nijuan is that Mr. Garcia Simisteras' agreement to plead guilty to the first-degree versions of the crime is powerful evidence that the crimes involved a loss of much more than $10,000, end quote. Rough one for aggravated felonies. I've got four thoughts. So, practitioners, when crafting plea deals to avoid immigration consequences in the 11th Circuit, I think this case makes clear, and at least for aggravated felonies where the circumstance-specific approach applies, that you can't rely just on the prosecutor agreeing to a lesser charge or even lesser facts. You need the prosecutor to submit an entirely new charging document for your client to then plead to. Or alternatively, maybe, you need to be very clear not to simply have your client plea to a specific count, or at a minimum, for the plea deal to outline the specific and exclusive universe of facts underlying the conviction. Just my thoughts, but this decision is definitely something to consider. Also note, because the 11th Circuit resolved the case on Mr. Garcia Simistera's plea alone, it did not reach the question on whether a court may rely on a disgorgement amount in the state of Florida to meet the $10,000 amount of loss monetary threshold. Continuing on, if there was any doubt in the 11th, and I don't believe there is, but if there was, the 11th Circuit made clear here that a plea of nolo contendere and a withhold of adjudication of guilt in Florida and a sentence to merely probation will constitute a conviction for immigration purposes. But finally, the 11th Circuit did cite a matter of Bava Isakov, published by the BIA in 2007. Noting that a defendant's plea to a criminal count alleging a fraudulent transaction in excess of $10,000 will most likely suffice to meet a clear and convincing showing, quote, unless the convicting jurisdiction treats the plea as only an admission of the bare elements of the crime, end quote. I'm not sure what states treat a plea as only an admission to the bare elements of a crime, and I guess it's not Florida, but the states must exist, and it's something to research so keep that argument in mind with your cases. And that is Garcia Simistera, the U.S. Attorney General. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official Immigration Review CLE certificate for five credit hours, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com 
with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook, at Immigration Review. And send us a tweet, at ImReview. That's I-M-M Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review. Thank you.